Good morning. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be, we'll be reading in verse 20, Matthew 5. If you're seeing me without a mask for the first time, yes, I have a mustache. I've been told I look like Wyatt Earp or by like Teddy Roosevelt. I was going for Tom Selleck, but no one remotely thinks that's the case. So clearing that up. So welcome. Welcome. We are welcome at home as well. Glad you're with us today. We're, we're back in our mini-series on the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount, as we work our way slowly through the Gospel of Matthew. Three weeks ago, Jace did an excellent job uh, taking us into a crucial and pivotal passage to understand the whole New Testament. And two verses stand out from his sermon, and uh, we will look at them. So if you're in Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 17 and 20 with me for a second. Verse 17, this is really key. Jesus said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's key to understanding all of what Jesus did in all of the Old Testament. And then he said, astoundingly in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These two statements went off like atom bombs in the minds of the first century Palestinians who heard them. That's really how it should affect us as well. This idea that the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament have been superseded now by Jesus is astounding. Perhaps a little harder to grasp what it means for our righteousness to exceed those of the scribes and Pharisees since they're not around anymore. So, so it might be helpful to think about this Kind of like saying, unless you're a better basketball player than LeBron James, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. So we're told he's the best basketball player on the planet. So no hope for us there. What follows these two statements that Jay spoke on, if you haven't heard that, I really recommend you go listen to it. What follows those two mind-blowing declarations in the Sermon on the Mount are six shocking demands of the law of Christ. And we'll look at the first one today, which has to do with anger, but there are six, and we'll show them to you briefly. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. So we'll be for the next six weeks or so, I guess, going through those and thinking about them. Now, listen. Jesus' six demands don't provide a kind of hedge or like a hack Here's how you manage the Ten Commandments. Here's how you work through them. Um, nor do they give us like the true meaning of the law because somehow the old Pharisees and the scribes and everybody else got it wrong. The rabbis got it wrong all along. Rather, Jesus' demands actually transcend the law. As we study them, we'll gain understanding about what he meant. Today we're beginning with anger. So, look with me in your Bibles, if you will, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. This is God's Word. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word abides forever. Let's pray. Lord, there is no ambiguity here in this passage. Really, it is very straightforward. And we are instantly unveiled before it and before you. Lord, we long to obey you, and we long and love your word. And so, Lord, we pray today you would bring your word alive in our hearts. Work in our hearts. Illumine our hearts. And, Lord Jesus, you know my weaknesses. Help Help us, Lord, as I speak. Help them as they hear. In Jesus' name. Amen. The movie 12 Angry Men focuses on a jury's deliberation in a capital murder case. Twelve jurors crammed in a small New York City jury room during one scorching hot day have the fate of a poor 18-year-old Puerto Rican boy in their hands. He's accused of the stabbing death of his father. A guilty verdict would mean an automatic death sentence. The case appears to be open and shut. The defendant has a weak alibi. A knife he claimed to have lost is found at the murder scene. Several witnesses either hear heard screaming or saw the killing or the boy fleeing the scene. Eleven of the jurors immediately vote guilty. Only juror number eight, Mr. Davis, played by Henry Fonda, casts a not guilty vote in the first round. First, Mr. Davis based his vote more for the sake of discussion. After all, the jurors must believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is guilty. And as deliberations unfold, the story quickly becomes a study of the jurors' complex personalities, which range from wise, bright, and empathetic to arrogant, prejudiced, and merciless, their preconceptions, background, and interactions. That provides the backdrop to Mr. Davis' attempt in convincing the others that not guilty verdict might be more appropriate. The 12 men were all different in many ways, but they had one thing in common. They were all angry. So, if you haven't seen the movie, I won't spoil it for you. 
Will the intellectual curiosity of juror number eight, Mr. Davis, be enough to change their minds? If not, their anger would lead to another murder. This is really one of my all-time favorite movies. If you haven't seen it, I can recommend it to you. Uh, the dialogue shows clearly how our personalities and prejudices affect how we see each other. It shows how easily we can come to the wrong conclusions based on where our hearts are. So, we must ask ourselves, when we summon a jury in the courtroom of our souls, are we angry? Are we letting anger put a finger on the scales of justice? If we are, we are confronted by Jesus' breathtaking and transcendent demand in this passage. And Robert Gulick says it this way in his commentary on the Sermon of the Mount, which is helpful. God through the law had outlawed murder. Jesus outlawed anger. Anger is a fire that can smolder hidden in our hearts only to leap into flames. Suddenly, sharp, hurtful words can race like wildfire through our relationships, stinging and scorching the earth and stinging our eyes that once looked on with tenderness, now look on with anger. Where brothers and sisters once enjoyed kindness and harmony, now adversaries lawyer up and go to court. Jesus comes out to meet us along the way with forgiveness and restoration. Our brotherhood in Christ extinguishes anger, provides a path to wholeness and reconciliation. Two points today. One, don't live in the hell of fire, y'all. Don't live in the hell of fire. Two, your get out of jail free card. So point number one, don't live in the hell of fire. Look in your Bibles with me again at verses 21 and 22. This is the demand that Jesus makes. This is the first of those six. Let's read it again. Jesus speaking says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. So we'll recognize a pattern of these six demands of the law of Christ as we begin studying them. They all begin with a kind of a formula. You have heard it said of old, but I say to you. Here, Jesus rocks our world by going directly to the Ten Commandments. Number six, thou shalt not murder, right? Now, Jesus transcends that, but he is not suggesting that there shouldn't be a civil penalty for murder, nor does Jesus speak against the death sentence for crimes of murder anywhere. Instead, Jesus knives through our legalist defenses. Well, at least I never killed anybody. Searches our hearts to say, oh, yes, you did. You killed them with anger in your heart. As I see this, I feel the wound of Jesus' words in my own heart. As I wrote this sermon this week, I became aware I was angry with a brother. Trivial, really, but I was angry. 
I need you to know this sermon is for me. God has to work in my heart through this. I need a Savior. So let's unpack these two verses a little bit. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus identifies three sins of anger and three places of judgment. The first sin addresses whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. That's a technical term of a place where you go and get judged, court process. But don't miss the qualifying word brother. Jesus alerts us that he's addressing the redeemed community, those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, if you're angry with your brother, you are liable to judgment. Since no one can see our hearts but God, then the place for judgment, for anger in our hearts, is the very judgment throne of God. God sees and judges. Then Jesus identifies the sinful use of the tongue to express anger. Everyone who insults his brother is liable to the council. Some translations, instead of insult, they'll use the word idiot. Everyone who calls his brother an idiot or something like that is liable to the council. Or if you say to your brother, you fool, you're liable to the fire of hell. There really isn't much difference in these terms. Maybe, maybe insults have more to do with attacking a person's intelligence and telling, calling someone, you fool, is more about their character. Maybe. But really, in the end, the effect is about the same. It's, it's not only dehumanizing, it is defaming and tearing down the very image of God in one who was purchased by the blood of Jesus. When we insult... We are defaming the image of God and tearing it down as someone that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We are injuring father, God's son or daughter. As a result, we are liable to judge before the council and even the, the hell of fire. So the council referred to the highest religious court of the land. Uh, the term hell of fire refers to a valley near Jerusalem called Gehenna. It was originally a place where idols were burned, then became a place where trash was dumped and burned. It was a vile place that stank with a continual burning and smoldering of fire and smoke. The term became synonymous with a place of eternal judgment and damnation for the wicked. A very present and, and poignant and powerful image in the minds of people. My daughter, Rebecca, uh, was 15. She and I went on a short-term mission trip to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. And one of our outreaches was to this massive dump outside the city. There was a whole class of people who lived off the dump and literally lived in the dump in little shanties they had built from the scraps of things they had found there. The whole place reeked of refuge. Nothing was clean. It's a pretty good description of our hearts when we stoke the fires of anger there. We have, we have pitched our tents in the hell of fire. The smoke permeates everything. If you ever spend an evening at a bonfire, you know, maybe swarming yourself there, standing around, adding more wood, poking it, and having a good time. You go home, you take off your coat, you hang it up. The next day, you go to get your coat, and it reeks of smoke, right? He didn't notice it at the time, but it was there. 
When we spend time in our anger, throwing on more fuel and poking around the fire of anger in our souls, we reek. We may not notice it ourselves, but those around us do, and they're just waiting for the flames to burst out again. And although we don't realize it, we're under God's judgment. But if you're like me, as I was working through this, I'm like, wait a minute, Jesus, wait, hang on. Did you go a little too far calling my anger the same as murder? I mean, I, don't, I know it's bad, but, but, but it's really that bad? Is it, is it all that bad a thing? I mean, I know it's not ideal, but sometimes it feels like it's better. Just kind of tamp it down, shove it over, not just kind of ignore it, move on. You know, isn't that okay? Aren't the Ten Commandments for something more serious than anger? That's how it seems. I think to really get at how Jesus and why Jesus would say that, we have to understand the purpose of the Old Testament law and the law of Christ. Uh, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, was based on the reality of the sinfulness of all mankind and the brokenness of human relationships. The assumption was these people are fallen, broken, separated from God, and so the command sought to control the consequences of that brokenness. However, Jesus' demand that we not be angry with our brother assumes unbroken relationships. Relationships between individuals characterized by reconciliation and wholeness. That's what we're invited into when we come into the body of Christ through salvation. The law of Christ assumes you are a Christian with the Holy Spirit living inside, empowering you to love and that you are committed to walking in love. I find Dr. Gulick is helpful here again. He says it this way. Speaking of this verse, this text, he says, by using the form of legal ordinance, Jesus called for attitudes and behavior indicative of the presence of the kingdom, the age of salvation, is seen in restored rather than broken relationships between individuals. Consequently, anything less than the restored relationship leaves one culpable, leaves one guilty before God. So if we have anger smoldering in our heart toward a brother or a sister, in some sense, we are under judgment and imprisoned in the fire of hell. We need a get-out-of-jail-free card, don't we? Point number two, your get-out-of-jail-free card. Now, unpacking this passage here, we, we saw Jesus demand. Now he has two parables that he adds on there to help us grasp it, to help us understand it, to help us know what he's saying, why he's saying it. So let's look at the first parable in verses 23 and 24. He says this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So see here, 
the remarkable thing our loving Savior is doing, it's not what we expected. After showing us the seriousness of the sin of our anger, He calls us to have compassion on those who are angry. He do, we would expect Him to say, okay, you see how bad it is? Don't be angry. You, that's what you expect. Don't be, you think, so repent of your anger. He doesn't say that at this point. What He says in effect is, you see how serious this is? So be loving. And you, if you know your brother is struggling, go to him. Do everything you can to make sure your brother or sister is not trapped in the fire of hell, especially if you did something to contribute to it. Now, it doesn't say here that this person sinned against his brother or her brother or sister. Maybe there was sin, maybe there wasn't, but they know something's wrong. It's not just a good idea to go to your brother, it's a command to go to your brother. It is the law of Christ, and do it quickly. There's urgency in his language. Don't even wait a week. If God reminds you of it during a worship service, do something about it immediately. When we are successful in reconciling, not only do we free our brother or sister from their distress, we serve the whole church by keeping unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Like Paul exhorts us in Ephesians chapter two, uh, chapter four, verses two and three, he says, "Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bear with one another in love. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit through." The bond of peace. We serve the whole body when we resolve these things. They're not like, oh, it doesn't matter, it's just those two. No, it affects all of us. Fire is such a good metaphor for anger. If you find a fire in your kitchen, you don't think about it. You don't go, hmm. Let's see. Is it my fault that I had the fire too hot and it decreased, caught on fire? Is that my fault? Or really, is it Karen's fault? Because she understands this better than I do. Shouldn't she have said something to me first? Right? In fact, the more I think about it, how dare she not tell me to turn down the fire? If she told me to turn down the fire, I would have turned it down. No, you, you don't do that. You don't think, oh, who's really at fault? You know there's a fire. Put out the fire. You do it immediately. You don't care. Let's get in there and fix it. Right? 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 Good. Or if you happen to look out your window and see your, your neighbor's kitchen, and you see there's a fire on her stove, you don't go, oh, let me pray about this. Lord, I've noticed she's not very good with her kitchen. I've been expecting something like this. And she doesn't like it when I try to help her improve her garden. She gets mad. Lord, she may not want me to say anything. She, she may get mad if I do anything. Oh, Lord, what should I do? What should I do? Would you do that? No, you call the fire department. There's a fire. Put out the fire. Right? Anger is like a fire that's burning in your soul, and you do something about it immediately. I mean, think about it. 
If the fire keeps burning out of control, it becomes exceedingly difficult to put it out and then even to go back and find out what started the fire. Almost impossible because our memories are fallible at best and often we're prejudiced by the raging fire in our hearts. Well, you know, you said this. Well, no, I didn't say it that way. Well, yes, you did. Well, you said this and the fire has raged and now it's just who knows what happened. Don't do it. Don't live in the hell of fire. Go immediately. Sometimes, so bad all I can do is just bulldoze it down and start over. There are specialists who can find where a fire started, and so can Jesus by the Holy Spirit. But it's so much easier if you'll just go when it's fresh. Now, we haven't gotten to our get out of jail free card yet, but we will. But it's helpful to know that that all comes with some instructions. So I'd like to share with you an abbreviated version of our commitment to peacemaking at Covenant Grace. And this comes, what we're going to look at here in a second, from our Exploring Membership Binder. So I want to read it out loud. We're going to put it on the screen. Let me ask you to stand if you, if you can. And I'm going to come down with you and we'll read it together. So if, if you're able to, you don't have to, but if you're able to, let's stand and uh, we'll read these one by one. Ready? Whenever we are faced with conflict, our primary goal will be to glorify God with our thoughts, words, and actions. We will seek to overlook minor offenses. We will refrain from all gossip, backbiting, and slander. If I have a problem with others, we will talk to them, not about them. If an offense is too serious to overlook, or if we think someone may have something against us, we will go promptly to seek reconciliation. When we offer a word of correction to others, we will do so humbly, realizing that we're vulnerable to the same temptations. As well as graciously and gently, with the goal of serving and restoring them, rather than beating them down. When someone tries to correct us, we will ask God to help us resist prideful defensiveness and to welcome correction with humility, seeing it as an expression of another's care for us and a potential aid in our growth in godliness. When two of us cannot resolve a conflict privately, we will seek the mediation of wise people in our church and listen humbly to their counsel. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> Helpful. Helpful. <clears throat> Let's look at the second parable that Jesus gave us in verses 25 and 26. Let's just review them again. Here, Jesus speaking through this parable, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with them to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Ah, 
Here Jesus turns the tables on us, right? It's no longer our brother who has a problem in his heart. We are the ones being dragged into court for anger in our heart or angry words we have spoken. Now, it's not even our brother we are dealing with. You see, who is it we're dealing with? Our accuser. Some translations say our adversary. We must go to our adversary and be reconciled. We must forgive from the heart or else. Unless we sort it out, we will not be forgiven and we'll be thrown in prison. Jesus talks a lot in the New Testament about God not forgiving us and throwing us in prison. Surprisingly, let's look at these passages. We'll put them on the, on the overhead. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, this is right after the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, for if you forgive others who trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mark 11. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Luke's almost identical to Matthew chapter 5. He records Jesus' words this way, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way. Lest he drag you off to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. So I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. Then Matthew 18 this is that classic parable that Jesus told Peter said, how often should we forgive our brother? Seven times? Jesus said, no, 70 times, seven times. And he tells this parable about this, this master whose servant owes him a billion dollars or something, and he goes and begs, and, and he has pity and forgives him. Then that servant goes out and finds his fellow servant who owes him a couple of months' wages, and he grabs him, he throws him in jail because until he pays him off. The master finds out and has something to say about it. In verse 32, then the master summoned him and said, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts and Jesus stops and looks at us and said, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So you read these passages, an eerie, unsettling feeling creeps over us. We thought our adversary was our brother. Now we realize, no, our adversary is God. An angry God. Is our forgiveness by God dependent on our forgiveness of others? It looks like it is. 
Are we earning our salvation by something we must do? Is there a condition? We thought that we were saved by grace, through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. Yes, it's true, our forgiveness isn't based on anything we do, yet we keep falling short of forgiving others and we're told by God that he doesn't then forgive us. Here's the beauty of the gospel. Through the love of God, our adversary becomes our advocate, our defender, our deliverer, Jesus, who could rightfully accuse us to the judge and throw us into prison. He goes out, rushes out, meets us on the way to judgment and forgives us. Jesus is our get out of free get out of jail free card. Now I don't mean to imply you can carry Jesus around in your wallet and then just kind of pull him out when you, oh, there's Jesus. Anytime you get in trouble or you get angry, oh, I got Jesus. No, we want Jesus to carry us around in his wallet. It's not what's in your wallet. It's whose wallet are you in? That's the question. That's the dynamic. Here's how John Stott explains it helpfully. He says, once our eyes have been opened to see the enormity of our offense against God, the injuries which others have done to us appear by comparison extremely trifling. If on the other hand, we have an exaggerated view of the offenses of others, it proves that we have minimized our own offenses against God. So if we are struggling to forgive others' sins against us, the very least we have lost sight of the tremendous debt we were forgiven of at the cross of Jesus Christ. Somehow we've drifted away and we've forgotten that we deserved eternity in hell and we were forgiven. At worst, and this is really what Jesus is saying here when he talks about you won't get out till you pay every penny. At worst, when we, un, we have an inability to forgive others, the reality may be that we've actually never come to saving faith. We've never been born again. We've never repented. We've never really died with Christ so we could be made alive together with Christ. We are still living in our own righteousness, which is why it is so important to make others wrong so we can make ourselves right. If that is you today, if that is you today, Jesus offers you the free gift of salvation. Will you die to yourself and live to Christ? Will you take yourself and put yourself, or allow Christ to put him, you in his wallet? Stop living for yourself and come to faith. Believe in Jesus Christ to pay the price for your sins and forgive as you are forgiven. I hope you will. Love to talk to you about that. Or someone near you could talk to you about that. Well, I believe 
Jesus wants to put out some fires in our hearts today. The Holy Spirit is here to work in our hearts. At the very least, this should inform how we speak to and about other people, face-to-face or in social media. Now listen, if social media triggers you to anger, stop getting on it. Pretty, pretty, pretty helpful step to take. And we should repent of calling other people ugly names. Just because you don't know them doesn't make it okay for you to call them an idiot or a fool. You can disagree strongly without attacking someone. Now, you may have hardened your heart to your spouse or a sibling or a parent or a friend to the point that your arguments are now characterized by angry, hurtful words and names. Now your disagreements involve the use of degrading terms. So it's much worse and deeply hurtful. Jesus is listening. He wants to put out that fire. I'm also thinking of the single person who is lonely. Your God-given desire for fellowship or perhaps even for a spouse has gone unmet. And now in the place of longing, there is anger or bitterness. And now it's even harder to take steps towards anyone. Jesus wants to put that fire out in your heart and connect you with the body of Christ. Think about husbands who carry an irritation, maybe a low-level anger at their wives or children. Their wives and children just keep getting in the way of what you want, or maybe they just don't give you the respect that you think you deserve. You're not living them with, the, with them in an understanding way, and so when conditions are bad, you flare up. And everybody gets out of the way because now dad's mad. God wants to restore to you the joy of your family. Put out that fire of anger and disappointment in your heart. Thinking of wives, maybe you've been married for a long time. And maybe your husband just isn't the leader at home that he should be. Maybe he's weak, maybe he's selfish. You've kind of settled in this kind of low-grade contempt or disdain. No. Some level you kind of written him off. Whenever he fails again, you're there to kind of give him a little poke to it. You know, yeah. You've forgotten. God put you there to encourage him, build him up, bear with him in his weakness. Listen, sister, God is ready to put out that flame, restore love for your husband respect for him. Take out the reek of those smoky flames and put in place the perfume of his presence. Maybe you've been deeply wounded by a a terrible sin done to you. Be very grievous. Jesus wants to help you see he took that on the cross for you. 
And though it's hard, it may take time, he wants to bring healing to you. I have a friend who lives in Arizona where there are a lot of scorpions. And he, he says that at night, you can take out a special kind of light, it's called a black light, uh, and shine it around on the ground. And suddenly, the scorpions who are camouflaged, suddenly they light up like so many little fires out in the lawn. So you can catch them and kill them. Sounds like fun. <laughs> Sounds like, wouldn't be fun to step on one. If the light of God's word has revealed a fire in your heart today, or fires in your heart today, if it's light to loom them in a way you haven't seen before, it's a good time to stamp it out and kill it. And to commit to going to your brother or sister to be reconciled. It may seem easier to just to pray about it than going to your brother, but if the Lord is calling you to go and He does command you to go, it will glorify Him. Can't guarantee what the outcome will be, but obedience is better than sacrifice. Obey, obey, and go. Jesus will meet you and He'll be glorified. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we stand before your word laid bare. Pray you do your work in our hearts. With our hearts bowed, our heads bowed, let's just take a minute and let God, let God minister to you. If something's been coming to your mind throughout this whole message, something's been popping up, that may be the Holy Spirit you're convicted of anger, spend a little time talking to God about it. Bring about repentance. Let's just wait before him for a few minutes. your heart to God. Lord Jesus, you enable us to obey by your Spirit. Pray, Father, that you will work in your children's hearts today. I pray where there has been broken relationships that you will bring healing. I pray where there's been fear to speak about it, you will, you will open that door of faith that they'll speak. Lord, where there have been petty things that have accumulated, there'll be grace to forgive. But we ask you for that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Just want to say this, if you in faith, confess your sin to Jesus today, just as we prayed just now. I wanted to proclaim to you 
that in Jesus' name you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Let's stand and sing.